0: Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oakes. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This morning, we have the distinct pleasure of having Melissa Scanlon on with us this morning. She wrote a book called Prosperity in the Fossil Free Economy Cooperatives and the Design of Sustainable Business. Good morning, Melissa.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Thank you very much for being with us this morning. Melissa, why did you write this book?
1: Uh, well, as an adult, I've been a member of cooperatives throughout my adult life, mainly consumer cooperatives, food and outdoor clothing, etc. And so I've always known about cooperatives, but I am an environmental law professor. And when I got to the end of my frustration point, Uh, with environmental law in terms of the law not really being able to address issues related to providing us with cleaner air, cleaner water, a stable climate. That got me going deeper and looking at the underlying system that we are operating in with capitalism and the primary institution of the investor-owned corporation and how that's at odds with positive environmental outcomes. And so I started wrestling with the design of social enterprise and that brought me to look at cooperatives from as a scholar.
0: Wow. And, wait,
1: wait. <laughs> so I went from being a member to um, bringing that into my academic life. But
0: well, listen, you are an environmental law professor. And you're at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, the School of Fresh Water? The School yes. of Fresh Water Sciences. The
1: School of Freshwater Sciences.
0: And now you're talking about fresh water to what kind of business we have, what's our business system? That's amazing. Did you study business at all?
1: Um, I've been a business leader. Before becoming a professor, I founded Midwest Environmental Advocates, which is a nonprofit environmental law firm based in Wisconsin. It was the first environmental law center in the state, and I've been really involved in social enterprises as a business founder, but I haven't been formally trained with an MBA like you, Vernon. Uh so yes I'm I uh I had to learn a lot about economics and business and law uh in order to write this book.
0: So my business training taught me nothing about the cooperative model or the sustainable the, the sustainable part of my learning was how do you sustain for the stockholder? How do you get them more and more and more and more money? That was return on investment, this this whole world that you're talking about in terms of environmental law and how do we create a world that for our grandchildren will still be here. But if we do nothing, uh, what would the world look like, like, uh, I don't know, 15 years from now, 2035? What would the world look like if we do nothing?
1: Okay, so let's talk about the climate emergency and just a review of some of the facts related to climate change. The international scientific consensus is telling us that atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide are at their highest levels in over 800,000 years and continue to rise. Global average temperatures are one degree Celsius higher than pre-industrial temperatures. And that might not sound like a lot, but That means the sea level has been rising, warming, and becoming more acidic as it's absorbing all this excess heat and carbon dioxide. And what the United Nations scientific body called the IPCC has told us is that if we don't change course in this decade and move our economic activity off of fossil fuels within the next generation, so this is something that you and I will experience. Within the next generation, parts of the earth will be uninhabitable due to extreme heat. All the life-supporting coral in the oceans will die. But if you remember the Amazon and Australian fires of 2019, that, that will become the norm. We're already experiencing this now in the United States to a certain extent, and we haven't even reached this, you know, peak scenario of of climate change. So even now, June, 2021, here we are talking, the Western United States has suffered one of the most extreme heat waves it's ever experienced this early in the season with Arizona and Nevada at 115 degrees and the electric grids under strain. There's a record extreme level of drought in the West where Lake Mead, that supplies water for 25 million people is at the lowest point since the reservoir was first filled in the 1930s. So we're already seeing the effects of the climate emergency, and if we don't do anything to move off of fossil fuels, these scenarios will get even worse. But 2035 is you know, 14 years from now. The heat, droughts, flooding hurricanes will become the normal part of our lives if we don't change our trajectories
0: all right so you sound like one of those movies i don't know scary movies of the future part of the planet's gone It's just, just a lot of people don't believe believe that they just don't believe that They think everything is a forest. Everything is a lie. And so this whole thing about climate change is crap. I don't know if one third of our society or one half of it believe that there's no problem with climate change. And our last president was part of the reason for that. He didn't believe it. Do you have any sense of how to prove? I know the forest fires should be enough. Wildfires should be enough Uh, starting from Katrina and then every year since then should be enough with the hurricanes the people in Houston should say and know that something's changing because Africa's drawing us more hurricanes okay they're they're coming across more often how do we get people to really understand this is truth this is fact and if we don't do something if we don't start at the consumer level of doing something this is what our Children. Matter of fact, you said we will see it. I'm 74 this year, so 14 years. i will be 80. Yeah, I'm here. I'm still here, 88 years old, and we will see more and more and more of this. How do we get people? Do you have any sense of how we get people to really grasp with? Here's the problem.
1: Well, it depends on where you are, and I think you know if you go to Europe, there isn't so much confusion about climate change. If you go to uh, countries in the global south. They're experiencing the results of climate disruption much more acutely, not as much confusion. The reason there's confusion in the United States goes back to a corporate machine of information and disinformation campaign. And that relates to you know, keeping the investor-owned corporations that are involved in fossil fuels in business. So Uh, Climate change is not a belief system. You don't believe in it or not. The physics is the physics. And that's where we are with the facts of climate change. What I was studying in this book was um, the private sector moving way out ahead of the law, in particular cooperatives in the private sector, addressing climate change, understanding that it is a real problem and using their business activity to address it before you get the government to come along with you. So I think what you highlight here about this confusion, it's a real problem. It has resulted in um, the United States being a bit of a laggard in terms of having laws that uh, control greenhouse gases and move us effectively off of fossil fuels. But the private sector in particular with cooperatives, has moved ahead of the law. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize in the book is showing that even when you don't have satisfactory laws, you can do a lot with the business sector to address environmental problems and to address uh, inequality, which is, we haven't to, touched on that. But I think another piece of what motivated me to write this book is that we have major transitions we need to make in our economy, not just related to climate. That would have been enough, right? But we also have the sustainable development goals that are unanimously agreed upon by all the countries that participate in the United Nations to address poverty and rising inequality, access to clean, affordable water, etc. So we need to have businesses that are designed to address those multiple goals uh, and not to be at odds with reaching these larger goals for society.
0: (sighs) Melissa, Dr. Scanlon, this is phenomenal. How can one get your book? First, I I found it very readable, which I, I really appreciate. You make it really, really clear. So how can one get your book?
1: Sure. Well, first, thank you for reading it. And I'm really glad that you found it readable because I wrote it to be accessible to a wide audience. I didn't want this to just be for people trained in the law or for insiders in the cooperative movement. I wanted this to reach broadly. And my book link, hopefully you'll put on your website. So your listeners can then link to it and, um, ask your local bookstore to carry it, get it that way. And then, there, of course, there are the, the larger chain bookstores that you can access as well. But I would recommend going to your local bookstore and uh, also to your library and ask your library to carry it.
0: So what is the link? Is there? Uh, the link?
1: We'll put, why don't I send you the link, and then you can have it on your website.
0: Yeah, we'll put it on our website. That's easy. I'm I'm wanting to let people out there know, like, real early in this program, how they can get it.
1: So, if you go to coop, c o o p verde, v e r d e dot wordpress dot com, you can access information about my book, a link to it way to contact me you can see some of my blog posts about the case studies that have some photographs from my site visits
0: okay so is c-o-o-p-v-e-r-d-e that's a spanish word
1: maybe yes verde I mean verde is green in spanish
0: green co-op okay uh mm-hmm. co-op verde dot wordpress.com okay we're going to take our first break here in a, in a couple of seconds, but we've talked about what the world will look like in 14 years if nothing is done. We've talked about law. We've talked about business. We've talked about chemistry. We've talked about physics. So we're going to come back and and talk about what the world will look like if we do something in 14 years. And it's right, critical now. Uh, So please stay tuned for that. But we're going to get into some case studies in her book. She talks about some case studies looking at the cooperative model. And I'm just really curious to know a little bit more about how you got into this cooperative world. We'll talk more about that when we get back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have the distinct pleasure of having Melissa Scanlon on the show with her. She's a professor at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee in the School of Freshwater Sciences. And she's written a book called Prosperity in the Fossil Free Economy Cooperatives and the Design of Sustainable Businesses. And in the first segments, we talked about law, we talked about business, we talked about the economy. Oh, we talked about chemistry and physics. I want to know right now, Melissa, you start off with prosperity in a fossil-free economy. What do you mean by prosperity?
1: Okay, thanks for asking that. So moving the world off fossil fuels and powering all our systems on renewables is going to require the government to design economic stimulus programs as we move out of this pandemic that align with that. And we could take this opportunity to reject business as usual and rethink how businesses can be organized to produce broadly shared wealth. We could prosper while we transform and move off of fossil fuels. And our choices are going to involve trade-offs between how quickly we mitigate, which means reduce climate change, how, um, how quickly we do that will, will result in how much adaptation we need to do to disruptions like hurricanes and floods, how much suffering people are going to experience and whether or not we can prosper. And the more aggressively we mitigate greenhouse gases and move off fossil fuels in this decade, the less we will need to adapt, the less we will suffer. But what if our approach also meant we could prosper? So I put prosperity into this title because to prosper in this next economy is going to involve taking the democratic political experiment that we have had in this country to the next level and building a democratic economy, one that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. And this kind of economy is going to involve creating businesses that reflect this broad-based shared ownership and decision-making by workers. Melissa,
0: right? and- Ms. Lisa, let me just say to you, Will you please continue to preach? You're preaching to the choir. This is what I've been trying to say on this program for seven and a half years, but keep going. Okay. We, <laughs> okay. Yeah. But see, what I like about the way you're coming through this, it's all about how do we get fresh water? That's your, your basis, freshwater sciences, and you have to look at all of these other things. We've got to drink water. We need it for, for vegetation and agriculture. We need water, but you've got to look at all of these other things in order to get to having fresh water for people. Or People are just going to die if we don't have fresh water. And so you're, it's amazing to me how you've come from that one point to looking at everything that you're looking at. I'm sorry to stop you, so if you can remember where you were and keep going, please keep going. No,
1: that's that's fine. Prosperity, I think, means having a broader base of ownership and weaving sustainability into the core purpose of a business and improving the communities where business is conducted so that wealth can be shared more equitably, Across nations, races, and genders. And that is the system changing kind of prosperity that we should be aiming towards with our business activity. So I'm looking at what our major business activity institutions are and whether or not they align with that. And that's what brought me to looking at cooperatives, really, is that. I think the cooperative form, although not a panacea, can be more readily adaptable to this shared prosperity and that we can have multiple goals woven into a cooperative purpose. And the book hopefully provides some ideas for an inspiration for how to do that and examples of how that's happening. So this is not some pie in the sky thing, but I use actual case studies uh, from Spain and the U.S. to show that there are cooperative pathbreakers out there already working towards and achieving this prosperity goal.
0: Okay. Uh, Biden has build back better It's his term. And it seems like this is a perfect time in our economic political system to have your book. You have any sense of how you're going to get this to Biden Harris? How are you going to get this message that, that you preaching this morning?
1: I, I think Vernon Oates is going to deliver it. <laughs> well,
0: I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go to James Clyburn. I've already started trying to figure out how to get to him, okay? So he might get to Biden. But this book is worth, and th- this is amazing to me, Melissa, that you started with water and where you've come to in a cooperative. As a solution to our climate change issues, but I've had it and how I got to it is as a a solution to the the wealth. And you talked about prosperity, but being an African-American and seeing uh, how marginalized people don't get wealth, 57 cents of every new dollar goes to the one percenters. And that leaves 43 cents to the 99% of us. And those that are 50% talking about in terms of income, the low 50%, the low half of our uh, population, I don't know if they get 3 cents on a dollar, but it's very, very small. They don't get very much of this wealth. And so when you talk about prosperity right now is to the one percenters. That's who gets the wealth in America and that's seen through this pandemic. And so I've and looked at the-
1: this. And I want to add on to what you're saying, Vernon, that wealth in the United States is really unequal based on race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And the Urban Institute analyzed data on wealth from 1963 until 2016 and showed a gap uh, during that entire period. So in 2016, the average white family held seven times more wealth than a black family and five times more than a Hispanic family. So not only is there a, a great disparity overall, but then when you break it down by race and ethnicity, you see these disparities. So um, that's a huge issue to address. And another measure of inequality is the income gap between CEOs and workers in the same company. And that has grown by an order of magnitude since the late 70s. So. 1978, that gap was 30 to 1, but by 2013, it's 300 to 1. And these are areas where cooperatives are really equipped to address these inequalities through their uh, membership and through their, their um, compensation policies. One of the hallmarks of the cooperative pathbreakers that I study in this book is that they, they had CAPs between the highest and lowest paid people within the companies. And um, that led to a greater sense of shared equality within the cooperative.
0: That is phenomenal that you you went there. My stats are a little bit different from yours. I have it that the wealth of a family of four in the U.S., and I don't know if it was, I don't know my source, so yours, (laughs) it was $171,000 It was the average white family of four had, the amount of wealth that they had, $171,000. And the average wealth of a family of four for a black family was 17000 Okay. So it's yeah. ten times. You said seven. So we won't yeah. argue about it. We know it's huge, this wealth gap. Yeah. If it's a black female head of household, their net worth was $6. So they had more liabilities than uh, assets. They mm-hmm. owed more than they owned. If you were, and there's a lot of single-family black women head of households in the U.S. Unfortunately, and I think it starts from slavery on the way through. But we won't get into that social issue right now. I I love what you're you're handling all of these different things, and you're coming up with cooperatives is a better solution to all of this, much better I have it than this capitalistic model. The capitalistic model helps to create the climate change, helps to create, greed helps to create the climate change, greed helps to create this wealth uh, disparity.
1: Well, let me provide a little bit of distinction there. So I think we need to just understand the path dependence arising from capitalism, right? And it's a system organized around self-interest and competition. And it is not, I am not saying it's uh, that capitalism is all that cooperatives can coexist within a capitalist system, but what we're in today is what I think some people have termed hypercapitalism, and this is kind of capitalism on steroids. So, where producing financial returns for investors is the singular top priority, and information, goods, and people are moving around the globe with a speed not previously known. You have businesses that lack a commitment to specific places, and consumerism sort of as a belief system that is orienting people's lives and values in order to drive economic growth, and then governments that have a very limited will to regulate or tax the multinational corporations that shape this reality. So I just wanted to give that point on there because it's not that I'm arguing in the book that we need to reject capitalism per se. It's this extreme form. Hmm.
0: We'll be right back to talk more about this extreme form of capitalism and how cooperatives work if we really want a planet that we can live on. We'll be right back. Please don't touch the dial. Welcome back everybody. This is Vernon Oaks and the program is Everything Cooperative. You know the co-ops are much different, Melissa. When you when we finished last time, you were talking about the single focus of the capitalistic model, and this is what I got at at Stanford. Every decision was based on what's the best ROI. What gives the stakeholder the best return on their investment? Every decision. I mean, that was it. What's the highest return on investment, and that led to short term decision-making but in the co-ops there's the values and principles it doesn't make a difference of what the name of the business is they could call itself a co-op but it really makes a difference if they're living by the values and principles of cooperation so there are seven principles and they are volunteer and open membership It doesn't make any difference of what you look like where you from what your religion what's your political affiliations the second one is democratic member control Democratic member control is one member, one vote. The third one is member economic participation. There's normally some money you put in, and if there's a surplus or profit, there's money you get back, and the members decide how much. There's autonomy and independence. That means they have to have control. Government can't not have control. Anybody that loans the money can't have control. The members must have control. And then there's the fifth one, and this is what I loved about co ops when I first learned about them Melissa, is education, training, and information. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you're constantly being trained, you're constantly being educated. And so it's almost like just-in-time information. You need the information. You get the information you need to make that decision, and a lot of times they were long-term decisions. The sixth one is cooperation among co-ops. That's people working together as opposed to this competition. And then there's concern for community, which is the seventh principle. So social responsibility is built into the DNA. And I like the – the, the values relate to these seven principles, but the ethical values of honesty, openness, or transparency, openness, social responsibility again, and caring for others. I like to call it caring for one another, the golden rule. so these are the principles. How did you find that these principles you talk about them a lot in your book, which I really know you you get what's at the core of cooperation, but what do you find how these principles help with? sustainability and climate change and all the things that you were talking about earlier to help us that we will be able to live after 2035.
1: So I think these shared international principles and values are one of the biggest distinguishing features of cooperatives uh, compared to an investor-owned corporation, which, as you were saying, Vernon, uh, when you're taught in business school, that the primary focus is profit for cooperatives, which you're not taught about in business school, generally. The focus is multi-pronged and is based on shared values and ethics across the world, which is really just a fantastically rich basis on which to build a business. And principle seven, concern for the community, is the locus of Environmental protection uh, for cooperatives and understanding that that means working for the sustainable development of the community in which the cooperative is based, but also the communities with which you're interacting um, beyond the local. So, what I found in my case studies is that the cooperative pathbreakers, the sustainability pathbreakers, incorporate these principles into their bylaws or articles of incorporation. And they use this legal design to give greater purpose to and focus to their day-to-day operations. And it helps them move beyond what the general laws of society might tell them about equity with workers or protecting the environment. If they have really strongly articulated the cooperative values and principles in their legal design, they're more the the pathbreakers that generally did that, and then they generally would spend time figuring out how to implement that into their internal policies and and influence the the structure of their business and the focus of their business.
0: So you talked a little bit earlier about how you got to this. Did you know about co-ops when you were child? I didn't learn about co-ops until I was 40-something when I was managing housing co-ops. And at Stanford, they didn't teach it in the MBA program, as you just said. And I later found out that Leland Stanford, who gave money and land to start Stanford, was a senator, and he had laws that he had created to for the Senate to pass to enhance worker co-ops. And they never got passed. And he wanted Stanford to teach co-ops, and it's sad that they don't teach it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good place for them to take that up in their mission. But it's like you belong to co-ops or how did you really get to this co-op world? How did you get here?
1: Yeah. So I, I did belong to co-ops, but I didn't really understand how they fit in to our overall economic system until, you know, much later in my adult life. So I think that their role is somewhat obscured which is kind of ironic given that so many millions hundreds of millions of people belong to co-ops in the United States and co-ops are such a big part of our economy in terms of they exist in almost every economic sector and we're hugely important in bringing electricity to rural United States and allowing economic development to occur across the rural United States post-1930s. So you mentioned that that education feature of the cooperative principles, and I think we do really need to emphasize that. We need to do more education about co-ops. And I know the International Co-op Alliance has a common brand that can be used, but a lot of co-ops aren't even using it. So until you have that, that education and maybe a common branding, it's hard for people to even recognize that something is a co-op.
0: So ICA is having their annual meeting in Seoul, Korea, December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. I'm hoping to go if the pandemic allows me to. And you loan me the money, Melissa. Uh, And second, the U.S. main co-op group is NCBA, National Cooperative Business Association, CLUSA. And they're having their annual meeting in October. I think it's the first week of October. I don't have that date memorized, but there is on the impact, the co op impact. Are you going to that this year? I've been there this I think this is their fifth time that they're having it and I've been to all of them. Are you gonna to go to the
1: either of those? I am going to that. That is starting October fourth. Okay. And it goes all week and I'll be um talking about my book at that conference.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, October 7th is my birthday. That's when I'll be 74. October is the month that we started this program eight years ago now. October is co-op month. October is the Impact Conference. So October is big in my life. It's it's huge. It is. So you were talking about the different types of co-ops. So re- real quickly, there are four sectors, co-op sectors. I have it, and it depends on who owns and controls the business. If a business is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. And therefore, you can have any business you can think about could be a worker co-op. It could be owned and controlled by the uh, employees. The second type is if it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services. Those are called consumers. They use the products and services. That's a consumer co-op. And that is housing co-ops or consumer co-ops. Again, that's where I learned about co-ops. Credit unions, financial institutions are consumer co-ops. The people that make their deposits own the business. Rural electric co-ops. And that's where you get the largest number of cooperators. And I have it as 140 million with for University of Wisconsin study that was done several years ago. And then there's. Marketing co-ops, and that's when a group of people or a group of businesses come together to market their products. And sometimes they are called producer co-ops because they may add value to them. Lando Legs, Ocean Spray, Cabot Creamery, these are all examples of marketing co-ops. The farmers will bring in their products to this business, and they will add value to them, or they will market it could be a Wisconsin farmer whose milk ends up in New York or California, where the farmer couldn't do that, but this business could. And then there's the purchasing co-op. The farmers are using this, like the marketing co-ops, a group of farmers, group of businesses come together, and they purchase what they need. And because they're buying in bulk and they have a business to study it, they normally get higher-value products with a lower price. So these are the different types. Of uh, four segments of co-ops, and, you yeah, know, and even
1: you know large corporations like Taco Bell and Subway participate in these purchasing co-ops. I think separating them like you did is really useful. One of the interesting things that I saw in the Spanish cooperatives that I was studying is that there were um, they were more um, adept at creating hybrid ownership structures where they would have different classes of owners, consumers and workers, for instance, coexisting within the same cooperative. And that that provided a, a, a different model than sometimes we see in the United States. But I like to think about this as co-ops creating platforms of participation. So wherever it makes sense to um, band together, uh, a cooperative could be the the right organizational entity uh, to do that, to serve the members. And um, the way you've classified these members into producers and workers, et cetera, is is really helpful to think about that. And then to also think about how you can have hybrid memberships where people can participate.
0: Well, a lot of people know about Ace Hardware, but they don't know it's a purchasing co-op that they've joined together and they buy so they can compete against the Home Depots or the Walmarts so these little mom and pop stores can compete buying higher quality at a lower price and they can pass that on and then there's the food co-ops food co-ops normally started out as consumer co-ops where the people and Matter of fact, you're like this, Melissa. I was told when I first got started that blacks were not into co-ops. That was white hippie people eating tofu. They were the ones that were into co-ops. And it was a lot of food co-ops and hippies that got into it because they they wanted better food, better quality food, organic foods, and they would form. But now there's hybrids. A food co-op could be a worker co-op or a consumer co-op or the hybrid that you're talking about. I've seen a few of those. And the other one I wanted a purchasing mark purchasing marketing co-op. Artists are beginning to use those more. There's a group of black women in Pittsburgh, and they call themselves Ujama, and they some of them make jewelry, some of them do paintings, some of them do clothing, and they form this co-op together so they have a storefront. Any individual artist could not afford a storefront, but together they could. They have a nice. webpage, Ujama dot co-op, and you can go there and buy this phenomenal artistic work just is great so
1: and to your point about black people not participating in co-ops that is obviously ridiculous because black people have been developing cooperatives and systems of mutual aid as prosperity strategies for you know generations and starting in 1969 the Black farmers in Georgia secured their land through New Communities, Inc., which became the first community land trust in the United States to promote access to affordable housing. So that was a pioneering co-op that has really led the way to thinking about how co-ops can stabilize land values and make housing more affordable to people.
0: We've got to stop now and take our final break already. I knew this was going to go very fast. And we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about blacks and co-ops. Particularly, I've had Shirley Sherrard, who her and her husband started New Communities Land Trust, and they went to Israel to figure out the plan. But we'll be right back, and we'll talk more. And I want to get to one of your samples. We'll be right back, please. Don't touch that dial. Your News Talk Station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we are talking to Melissa Scanlon, who's a university professor. What I like about her book, Prosperity in the Fossil-Free Economy, Cooperatives and the Design of Sustainable Business, is a pack full of information, but it's very readable. So I would suggest that everybody out there, would go get this book. You can go to Co-op coopverde.wordpress.com. That's C-O-O-P-V-E-R-D-E dot W-O-R-D-P-R-E-S-S dot C-O-M and get a copy of this book. She will be talking at the NCBA Impact Conference in October of this year. And you can hear her there. I think that's going to be virtual and live. I'm not sure how they finally got that done. But before we took the break, you were talking about new communities, land trusts, and Shirley Sherrard was on our show, Shirley's a phenomenal lady. She and her husband started that program, and they started the Georgia Southwest Project in the 60s. And she's a phenomenal woman. You can go on our webpage, page, www.everything.coop, put in Shirley Sherrard, and you can listen to that program. She's phenomenal. She's one of my heroines. Uh, she's up to the top. The other thing is Jessica Gordon Nimhart has written a book called Collective Courage. And she was the one that told me when she started doing this now about 25 years ago, getting this, uh, research that people told her blacks were not in co ops, and she found out that blacks brought cooperism over here from West Africa. It goes back eons of generations in the, uh, uh, time, and the slaves used co ops, borough, mutual aid societies, and all kinds of co ops. In the Federation of Worker Co ops, uh, Federation of Southern co Sorry, started in 1967 and Shirley and her husband were a part of that and that's still here uh, Cornelius Blanding uh, has been on the show several times and several other people from that group and that's 13 states black farmers trying to keep their land and join together to make more money and provide better products mm. it's, 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 it's in our DNA in blacks DNA but we don't know it okay
1: and it's such a history and goes back to that education piece that we need to be aware of how this cooperative form has been used and benefits people as a way to reduce barriers to entry, reduce barriers to ownership, allow people to prosper.
0: So I have it for marginalized people. Some people don't like that term, but marginalized people, blacks, browns, Native American, women, Appalachia, where I'm from in West Virginia, the poor whites, black, it didn't make any difference. Poverty did not care about your race, didn't care about your age, didn't care about your religion or your politics. Um, Mm -hmm. Same kind of results. But anybody that are having difficulty, this is a phenomenal system to start a business, people joining together with limited resources, and they're very successful because of the education, highly successful.
1: Right. And you, um, you talked about a little bit about the organic food co-ops, hippie kind of, I guess, reputation, yes. right? And at, what I like to contrast that with is one of the grocery store co-ops that I studied in Spain is called Consume Cooperative, and their purpose was to provide food at an affordable price to address a really high rate of inflation when they formed at the uh, in the 1970s in the Valencian community of Spain. And they have grown to be just a massive force uh, to compete with these big box chain stores, chain grocery stores in Europe. So it's it's really fascinating to see that a co-op can be at a much, food co-op can be at a much larger scale, and was motivated from that same kind of economic founding that you're talking about, Vernon, uh, as it relates to low-income, addressing the needs of low-income people. And since since they have flourished and started seeing the environmental problems that Uh, Europe and the rest of the world is facing, they have incorporated environmental sustainability into their mission and what they do, and they're way out ahead of other grocery stores.
0: So let's talk now about one of your case studies, uh, one of the U.S. ones as opposed to the Spanish ones. Which one would you like to talk about?
1: Sure. Um, Well, why don't we talk about the crop cooperative that was formed in uh, the late 80s? That's a farming cooperative. And I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Should I tell you a little bit about it? Please.
0: C-R-O-P-P? Yes. Okay.
1: You might be familiar with their most popular brand, which is Organic Valley. Yes. Um So that's a really interesting story because they were formed in the 1980s when uh, the Wisconsin dairy farmers were experiencing this terrible farm crisis Uh, struggling not to fall into bankruptcy. Many were falling into bankruptcy. And an idealistic group of 50 produce farmers and seven dairy farmers banded together to try to come up with a farm-appropriate solution because they found that the federal government was not going to be coming to their aid. So this is where cooperating made more sense. And they formed an organic value-added cooperative to save the family farm. It was really about the kind of bread and butter aspect of making sure farmers had an income that could keep them uh, farming the land and doing it in a way that was protective of the environment.
0: So that sounds like that is a marketing co-op or what we call a producer co-op. These farmers come together, 67 of them, and they form a co-op where they can yes. market their products to places that they couldn't do individually to overcome hardship. It's also interesting how co-ops have been there when there's downturns, when there's necessity causes co-ops to happen. Could be economic necessities. Environmental necessities that you 've been talking about, but form co ops to help the members helping the members you already said is the key for co ops we're in the cooperative in a, in a capitalistic model is how you help the shareholder uh, who may That's not right. even live in that community, who may not even live in this country, um, but they have the capital and they invest in it, and the whole idea of that business is how to make them more profitable more more money where the co op is how do you help the members and in this case That's all. it's the farmers.
1: Right. And they essentially were forging this co-op at a time when there wasn't really a market for organic dairy. And so they set the price at a level that could keep farmers farming. And it proved to be a very successful strategy. Uh, So by 2019, when I did the interviews with their uh, former CEO, who was their founding, a founding member, they had more than 2,000 organic farmer members spread across the United States, um, 31 states, and they were the first organic foods company to earn a billion dollars in annual revenue. So it, it proved to be a very successful model and a way to create a platform that then could expand across the United States to share wealth with you know over 2,000 farmers.
0: Um. I just went under. I looked. I Google C R O P P cooperatives, and I came up with Farmers dot co-op. I put in crop dot but it's Farmers dot co-op. It's their web page, and they say 85 percent of crop farms have 100 cows or fewer, which is smaller. So, okay. What did you find out about them? What what as it relates to environment and how we help the climate? What did you find out about them? What What did your research tell you?
1: So they were, of course, pioneers in organic dairy products, and then they started using and advocating for pasture raised cows 25, 30 years ago, and now we're finding out that uh, growing perennial grasses is extremely important in terms of locking up carbon in the soils and you know sequestering it taking it out of the air and sequestering it down into the soil so it's less harmful. And it's also really important for water quality. And these farmers have been doing this uh, way out in advance of what getting any kind of societal recognition for it. Uh, the crop co-op also really supported their farmers in, trend, in energy efficiency, so Reducing their energy demands, they were teaching farmers about how to how to grow their own energy by growing sunflowers and then distilling that down into biodiesel to run the tractors. They were really instigating installations of solar power across the farmer base, um, and at their headquarters, they're 100% operated on renewable energy. And none of that, of course, is required by law to do that. So, again, they were able to use this values-driven cooperative model, farmer-driven, about returning um, a financial benefit to the farmers, but use that in a way that also promoted these environmental sustainability goals, and they're way out ahead of the industry.
0: Less than a minute, what message do you want to leave people with?
1: Did you say that's the message I want to leave people with? What
0: what message do you want to leave me if you have 30 seconds?
1: I would say that um, one of the important things to recognize in co-ops is that not only are they historic, they've been around for 200 years, but they are extremely extremely relevant.
0: Extremely relevant. We're going to stop there. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next Thursday and see Melissa at the Capital Impact. Live cooperatively.